welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Tay-Sequetum territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetum-Ulu. And today's text, Apple, Skin to the Core, takes place primarily on Tuscarora territory in what is now known as Northern New York State. Eric Gansworth, the author, is an enrolled citizen of the Onondaga Nation. Joe, mm-hmm. I set you a challenge with this one, I think. Because <laughs> it's like 350 pages of poetry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, as folks may remember, I'm not the fastest of readers, and particularly when I'm being challenged to read something like verse, uh, it's a bit doubly slow going. But I will say once I actually got into the rhythm of how Gansworth writes, I did end up ultimately enjoying this, although it was, as usual, a race to the finish line for this recording. <laughs> yeah, and I will say that it was for me as well. I think that the poetry is a lot denser than what we experienced with something like a brown girl dreaming, for example. Mm-hmm. That poetry is a lot sort of lighter and easier to kind of trip across, whereas I found that I was often, first of all, looking up references a lot of the time, both pop okay. culture and not. Um, and also just, yeah, the the way the poetry functions is a lot more, I don't know, I, I think it's very literary text for a, for mm-hmm. a memoir for young adults in particular. Yeah, I I did want to maybe before we go into the text proper and what Gansworth is doing, I wondered if we could have a conversation and use uh, tea books and chocolate as a jumping off point because in one of the two responses that we got to the book, tea books and chocolate says when you described it as a memoir in verse, I thought it would be like the Odyssey, you know, sort of a long poem about uh, Gansworth's life, but. She then goes on to ask, what makes this a memoir in verse versus a collection of poetry? Mm. And I was wondering if I can kick that back to you. Yeah, totally. So I think, I mean, I think it is a collection of poetry, but why it's a memoir in verse primarily is just like the thematic framing, right? Mm -hmm. So it really is taking place almost entirely with with a couple of exceptions in chronological order, right? right? From before his birth to his young adulthood. So in the same way that we call it a novel in verse when a series of poems has like a narrative arc, I think it's the same thing happening here. It's a memoir in verse because we have the narrative arc that so closely follows the chronology of a life, in this case, Eric Gansworth's Mm. life. Right. Okay. That totally makes sense. Yeah. And I think that you could take any one of these poems sort of out of the out of the context of the book, um, mm-hmm. maybe with the exception of some of the Beatles song riffs, <laughs> which really do kind of need their context. There's one whole section, folks, if you haven't read the book, that follows um, the White Album. Well, it actually right. follows a couple of Beatles albums mm-hmm. um, and like aligns moments in life and poems that Gansworth has written with Beatles songs. So that part mm-hmm. is pretty self-contained. But there's other poems here that you could take out and just sort of read them as standalone poems. You could totally see them excerpted into like a textbook or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a collection for young people for sure. But yeah, for me, it's that narrative line. Anytime a poetry collection has a strong narrative line, I start to think of it more as like a novel in verse, a memoir in verse instead. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you say that because I believe in the acknowledgments or even the postscript, Gans' work does acknowledge that some of these were written independently as kind of standalone poems for other publications. Mm-hmm. And I think he then found ways to either tweak them or insert them into the chronology when he was working on this as a kind of cohesive whole. Yeah, I think so too. And that's really common, right? Is Putting together a collection like this takes <laughs> it takes time. If you can publish the pieces individually, like from just a keeping food on the table sort of perspective, it's a good, it's a smart mm-hmm. thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Brenna, we know for sure that a couple of listeners were not able to get their hands on it because we've been fielding questions in the mailbag about translations recently. So, mm-hmm. if folks haven't been able to read Apple, what is it about? Yeah, great question. Okay, because it's about a lot of things. Right? <laughs> it's about a lot of things. So Apple Skin to Core is the subtitle. It came out in 2020. And Eric Gansworth is already a, an established writer, both of young adult and adult literature. But this memoir is particularly targeted to young adults. Mm. I should note that it's won the American Indian Youth Literature Award in the young adult category. It was long listed for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, and it was a Prince Award honor book. We've mm. read a lot of those. So we kind right. of know what the Prince people look for, I think, at this point. <laughs> mm. So the book is really about Eric Gansworth's growing up as an Onondaga young man within a Tuscarora community. So there's this really important through line about sort of insider-outsider status. He grows up on the Tuscarora Reserve, but his parents, or his mother in particular, he he comes from a matriarchal line of Mm -hmm. Onondaga people who have been existing within Tuscarora community. So in addition to his kind of coming of age and growing up, we also have this narrative that runs through about his discovering that he is queer. We have a narrative that runs through about the legacy of residential schooling and the impact that that's had on his family. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have a a through line about working on skyscrapers. A lot of his father's family have been like iron workers. Mm -hmm. uh, And he has this sort of this notion of like building and construction and the way that men from his community are really kind of used up by the construction industry. So there's like all these different things going on and there's not really a a plot as you would Mm -hmm. imagine from a collection of poetry, but we do get all these vignettes about, you know, what it's like to first go to a school that is primarily made up of other indigenous kids like him, and mm-hmm. then the experience of transferring to a white high school, what that's like, the desire to get out of his community, the discovery of a community college as a as a pathway out, um, and then ultimately sort of coming back to the community and and what that experience is like for him. And there's always a sense, you know, the title is Apple, which is a slur that's used against mm-hmm. Indigenous Americans, right? It means that somebody who looks red on the outside, but is white on the inside, i.e. they look Indigenous, but they act, quote unquote, white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Gansworth has all these interests, whether it's the Beatles or, you know, a brief foray with Star Trek. There's all these moments where he's <laughs> like, Batman, where he's seen as connecting more with kind of white culture. And yet at the same time, he's always reflecting on the ways in which his own culture is denied to him, either mm-hmm. because he's Onondaga living among Tuscarora or because the residential schooling experience meant that he comes from a, a line of women in particular who have tried not to share back their culture to their children for safety. Mm-hmm. 
So the book is about all of these things, and it really is... <laughs> just a few. Just a few things. Just a few things. <laughs> and it really is kind of a sprawling sort of coming-of-age type story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm interested because I know that you mentioned you sometimes found this challenging as well, mm -hmm. just to either get into the writing, get into the flow. It is a bit of a tome, right? Like mm -hmm. there isn't something simple to hang your hat on because Gansworth goes through so much. And yet I found him, I'm speaking of him as he, as though he's a fictional character. Mm -hmm. uh, I found Gansworth eminently fascinating mm -hmm. and the voice, like this really has a presence and it's interesting to me because it did feel like it was reflection like reflective mm -hmm. as though Gansworth was writing some of these pieces as an adult thinking back on his childhood which I know we sometimes struggled with in terms of defining YA and even though it's going chronologically it feels steeped in history like he's writing about his childhood and it's of that time and yet it feels like it is anticipating some of the challenges to come. Well, it's really interesting to me that it's a memoir, right? Mm -hmm. Which implies exclusively from one's own personal like perspective and telling right. the stories of one's personal life. But it starts like a couple hundred years before Gansworth is born <laughs> and before the yep. first American like the big boarding school in the US for indigenous kids was Carlisle, right? right? The Carlisle Industrial School. And he he orients the book around sort of just before the Carlisle School opens and what that looks like in terms of transporting people away from his community. Mm -hmm. So you know from the beginning that you're, you're getting into a pretty epic scope, right? right? If someone starts their memoir like 200 years before they're born. <laughs> Very sprawling. Yeah, there's going to be some epicness. <laughs> There. Uh, yeah. And so I think, I think it definitely does have more of that reflective quality than I would normally sort of call YA. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the difference for me here, um, compared to some other texts that we've looked at is we don't really have a frame, right? The right. narrative takes place up into Gansworth's adulthood. Um, but we don't have that kind of like, here I am sitting and looking back, right, mm -hmm. as the opening. Instead, the opening is like eons before his birth from a personal perspective, right? Right. Um, and I think that, that has a lot to do with how the voice maintains a sense of immediacy, even when some of the pieces are, you're right, quite reflective. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you feel about some of the pop culture influences. Mm -hmm. You know, we mentioned the Beatles is a big structuring device. And obviously, Gansworth had a strong attachment to the music, to other pieces of pop culture. I like the fact that he's kind of nerdy. And yes. even the fact that you you said, you know, he discovers that he's queer. And yet the book, I think, is so, hmm, not careful, but... It's a very quiet coming out to oh, the point yeah. where I think if you're not careful, you would completely miss it. I really wanted to ask you about that because Kinsler's perspective on the community is quite queered by a number of factors, right? Like, Yes, he's almost always an outsider. Yes. And it, it goes all the way back to his Onondaga heritage, but it's also, yes, his nerdiness, the fact that all his best friends are women. Mm -hmm. He really bonds with the wives of his cousins. That's like the main place yep. he finds friends. Which is a very queer thing, by the way, for gay men. And you don't find, you don't get kind of a confirmation of queerness nope. until he has left the community um, and is living with his first partner, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I wondered, I really, when I got to that scene, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk to Joe about this because we've had so many different kinds of coming outs. But yeah, I think this is probably maybe the quietest one and the one most rooted in primarily in self-discovery as opposed to sort of self-presentation or how you're perceived by people around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when I read that section, you know, my, my sort of gaydar immediately started to ping. But he never says, you know, I was living with a man. It was I'm living with someone that people sort of tell me isn't acceptable or mm-hmm. that it's not right. And him coming to grips with feeling that outsiderness again when he's no longer living on the reservation, when he's sort of living his authentic self, and he knows that he's moved on from some of the historical roots that he's grown up in, right? Like he's really forging his own path. Mm -hmm. And yet the fact that we don't see the word gay, we don't see like Mm -hmm. boyfriend or husband or anything like that. And it's so brief, like it's layered in there that I do think that people could miss it. And it's fascinating because in some ways, this is a healthy kind of representation where Gansworth just is queer. Mm -hmm. And it informs the story in certain ways, but it also in some ways doesn't ultimately change anything. Like he is queer and he is also a writer and he is also indigenous. Like these are all just different facets of his personality and his identity. I really found it interesting that that first poem where we talk about the partnership, the romantic partner, um, is written in the second person. Mm, It's mm -hmm. written to you, right? And you is the boyfriend, the partner, but it's also you as the reader, right? Mm -hmm. And so in this very, I guess it is careful. It's a very carefully constructed kind of way. You you are the boyfriend, right? When you read that poem. And Mm -hmm. I found that such an interesting thing in a text that is otherwise um, not particularly out or overt. Mm -mm. But here the reader is implicated within a queer relationship in a way that I think (laughs) if you noticed it and that was something you had a problem with, I think it could be quite confronting, right? So it's a very, it's a really interesting choice. Mm -hmm. It's almost sly, right? Yeah. I think it also helps to bolster a relationship with the reader. In some ways, I think the book is a little bit confronting, like just by sheer virtue of being written in verse, Mm -hmm. it will immediately turn off people, admittedly, like me, who would look at it and say, ooh, I don't know. Unless I'm being forced to podcast about this, I don't know (laughs) that I would have picked this up. And yet there's these other sort of methods of finding ways into the text and the story and the memoir, like, you know, as both of us are nerdy geeks, I think we both appreciated the sort of relatability of Gens we're talking about his pop culture influences, like mm-hmm. his appreciation of settler colonial music in the Beatles and other contemporary artists, I think is another way in. So even if you feel off-put initially, there's ways to get in and on board with this. Yeah, like there's a series of poems that are structured around Star Wars. Mm -hmm. There's a series of poems, as we've already said, that are structured around the Beatles. For the Canadians listening, there is a lengthy poem about sitting and listening to the album Phantom Power by the Tragically Hip Mm -hmm. with a Canadian cousin that I just loved. Oh, I thought of you immediately. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those collections, I think, where... Yeah, it does often take a a moment to find your way into it because in many ways, Gansworth isn't really courting the reader here, right? Like we open with 
Gansworth's perspective on American history, and it's a political perspective on American history. I mean, let's be real. All perspectives on history are political. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is the kind of opening that could get a book banned in Florida, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. It's telling the true story of how colonialism works. So I think Gansworth is not particularly interested in making the reader comfortable right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But the irony is that I think there's probably some cultural reference point here somewhere, even if it's just like, you know what it feels like to be the outsider in a group, even when someone looking from the outside wouldn't think that you were an outsider, like Mm -hmm. those kinds of experiences, there's something to connect to here, but you have to kind of commit to the book to find it, which is, I don't know, it's an interesting strategy. Well, I wonder if that's an opportunity to bring in one of the things that listener Victoria wrote in about, which yeah. is how subversive the book is in sort of exploring indigenous figures in white culture. Mm-hmm. So Victoria says, it's also a subversion of white culture since Gansworth is inserting himself into these stories with comic books like Fantastic Four, Captain America, and evoking native settlement through white culture. Think of the recreation of the famous Beatles streetwalk, only in Gansworth's case, we actually see artwork of his family members. So we're, we're inserting indigenous figures into this iconic, white, very colonialist, well, the UK as a colonialist project. And Victoria says, it's a way of taking charge of his identity in a white world and shedding a spotlight on how native culture is usually ignored or erased from the mainstream, even though there are portraits and stories to be told from that perspective as well. Yeah, I really appreciated Victoria's email. I think that reflection of of how Gainsworth is using these sort of icons of white settler pop culture as his own touchstones and making Mm -hmm. them authentically a component of his experience is important. I also really like that Victoria brought up the art. So I don't think I mentioned this, Mm -hmm. but throughout the collection, Gansworth is also a visual artist. And so throughout the collection, we have both like single paintings and collages of his work, in addition to photographs of family members. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happens over the course of the text is that the family home burns down. Yes, it's a huge, you know, we talked about how there there isn't sort of a central thing that unites the text, but I would argue that that is one of the most significant pieces within the memoir. Yes, and it's important because obviously a lot is lost in a fire, but in mm-hmm. particular, what they call the Red Album, which is also a play on an indigenous version of the Beatles' White Album, um, mm-hmm. it gets burned, and that's where all the family photographs were kept. And yes. so where possible, Gansworth has included some original photographs, you know, ones that had been with his siblings when the fire happened. Gansworth is the much, much youngest of the siblings. And so he's the 11th child, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, it's something like that. And by far the youngest. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, many of his siblings have gone off and started their own lives and taken photos with them. So some things are preserved. But otherwise, what we get are these beautiful painting recreations of Mm, they're stunning they're stunning and it's the photos as they're remembered and i don't know if you've ever had that experience joe of like you have a really firm memory of a photograph in your head yep and then you're like home and you're going through your parents albums or whatever and you find that photograph and it looks completely different (laughs) (laughs) nothing like what you so i love that idea that we're not just seeing the family here but we're seeing the family as interpreted through gansworth's memory which i think is again for a, a for a memoir a really effective way to incorporate the visual Mm hmm 
So I wonder, because one of the things that both Tivo and Chocolate and Victoria raise is the idea of trauma and residential schools. Mm-hmm. And we previously touched on the fact that Gansworth, his entire history is rooted in, you know, this idea of like seven generations worth of trauma informed by things like residential schooling at the Carlisle. And how did you feel like this differed from some of the other depictions that we've read or seen on the show? It's a good question. I really appreciated going back to Victoria's email. She reflects on the fact that she did find it really difficult to read, like really difficult to revisit those experiences of trauma that she knows from history, but it's very immediate. Like, Yeah, it's so personal too. So personal. Gansworth does not pull any punches about the direct impact of the disruption of the family structure, like what that has felt like to him in a really visceral way. But Victoria points out that the structure of poetry is actually a really useful part of how those feelings are explored in the text. Mm-hmm. So Victoria notes that it asks the reader to slow down, to absorb what has been said instead of trying to breeze through it. And it's true, you yep. can't you can't breeze through this text. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. And I found that there was a period of time, um, particularly the early chapters, and then some of the chapters in particular where Gansworth deals with the absence of his father, that I would read like one poem and then I'd close the book. Like going to something else for <laughs> Take a, a breather. Yep. Yeah. And it, I think it does invite you to really thoughtfully process what the text is all about um, in a way that for me was really effective. Mm-hmm. I know. How did you feel about it? Yeah. Um, it was interesting because I feel like we read a number of Indigenous texts. And I think, again, one of the things we need to maintain is that when we use the word indigenous, it truly is an umbrella term, Mm -hmm. right? So there are certain distinctions here that I think make this an Onondaga or Tuscarora kind of text, right? Like there, there's a flavor to it that is unique compared to the lesser bless. So I, I liked that in some ways I almost felt comfortable with it because I I knew to anticipate certain pieces of this trauma. It wasn't as confronting as it would have been when we first started the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet I, I I kept confusing the text as a Canadian one because there's, mm. there's so many sort of border transactions, right? Like you mentioned the cousin from Canada. And there's a number of instances where they listen to like the radio or they watch TV that's coming from Ontario and it's like streaming across the border. So there's this, this liminal kind of way of broaching how culture can be distinct and yet it's also always informed or infiltrated by other influences. I think Gansworth is really adamant about reminding us that the border is a settler construction, right? So there's a couple of times where we find out about this annual march that many people from his community take to cross the border without declaring being Canadian or American, right? Mm-hmm. This this notion of like reasserting treaty rights, reasserting the right to not be controlled by those structures. Right. And it's so interesting because at the same time, like, those those impositions are there, right? And so there's always this tension between um, acknowledging it and and not acknowledging it that I found really interesting. Hmm. Can we shift? I want to I want to talk about one other sort of like stylistic choice that Gansworth yeah. makes, and then I think we've got a couple of other pieces to talk about from the emails. 
thought one of the things that struck me was, I want to say two thirds of the way through the book, all of the poems dial back to become about one page. Mm -hmm. So when you're reading it as a physical copy, you can open it and on the left side of the page, it's not stylized text, like it's it's not bolded, it's not italicized or anything. And on the right hand, it is italicized. Mm -hmm. And often the framing or the, the writing is shorter. But each poem has the same title. So mm -hmm. it makes you mm -hmm. think that the left page and the right page are in conversation with one another. And I wondered if you have any insight as to why he adopted that particular strategy. Yeah, so that is through the section that is framed by the Beatles albums as well. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it's I, the liner notes section. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what's happening through that section is that rather than the two poems being in conversation with each other, the two poems are usually in conversation with the same Beatles song and the title uh, reflects that in some okay. way. <laughs> Proof that I'm not a big enough Beatles fan to have got onto that. <laughs> this is where I was doing all my mad Googling. Because like I got it at first because the first one is come together and I'm like, well, that's a Beatles mm -hmm. song. Like there I know that. <laughs> um, and that seems to be the pattern throughout that section. It's like the one that's sort of plain text and almost formatted like a prose poem mm -hmm. is a reflection on his sort of memory of the song. And the one in italic seems to be responding to the lyrics of the song itself. Okay. I think. Please, if you read it, and folks, and you're like, what? No. <laughs> Please correct me. But that is how I read that section. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that maybe feeds into another piece by Addie, who wanted to talk about the the physical book. So yeah. Addie says, my last thought on the book is that reading a paperback edition felt fancy. <laughs> like I didn't feel like the paperbacks I read as a young adult. It was clearly higher quality. And that quality felt like a signal that this was capital L literature and mm. serious. So Addie is wondering if we read it in a non-virtual form. So I read it as a physical paperback. So I can attest it does. It has a heft and a, a kind of tomeness to it. Oh, interesting. But Addie wonders if this connotes that it is also sort of secretly for adults because it is a bit intimidating. And even the description on places like Storygraph seem like it could be for adults, even though the content is distinctly young adult literature. Oh, this is interesting. So I read the ebook, so I can't speak to the what Addie calls the materiality of the text. We should share the shout out to which please uh, mm, here mm -hmm. for for teaching about that concept. Um, the best example of this for listeners who are like, what the F are they talking about? <laughs> is the fact that if you go to the store and you buy Harry Potter in the children's section, it's got that brightly colored cover, absolutely iconic. Everybody can picture it with the train coming at you. Mm -hmm. And if you go and you buy it in the adult section, it has a much more subdued cover. Right. And the idea was that Prior to YA really exploding, a lot of publishers felt like people wouldn't sit on the train or on the bus or in a public space reading a book that looked like it was targeted for kids. Mm -hmm. I think that distinction has mostly fallen away. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I do. I do know. Like, I have definitely have friends who, for example, they won't read like a, they won't read a movie tie-in cover in public. They'll right. only read like mm -hmm. the literary cover in public. So I think this st still does have an impact on people. I mostly read ebooks now, so you got no idea what I'm reading, and I'm perfectly content with that. <laughs> um, Whatever, keep your secrets. <laughs> but I think that. That's a really good point. And, you know, 
we're talking about a book that has been lauded, right? It's won a bunch of awards. Uh-huh. Tea Books and Chocolate goes so far as to say that this book would have scared her as a high schooler. Like, <laughs> like the materiality of this book, she would not have picked it up as a high schooler. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I wish I had a physical copy because like a 350 page collection of poetry is not something you come across mm-hmm. every day. Did you have yep. the same experience, Joe? Did you look at it and think, what did Brenda do to me? Uh, when I first picked it up at the library, absolutely. <laughs> I was actually really pleased to see, like, it is very intimidating. But when you open it, you realize most of the poems are one to two pages. So yeah. as you said, even if you find it daunting, you can read one and then kind of stop and put the book down. But it did make me all the more appreciative for the way that Gansworth divides the book up and how he uses the photographs and his own artwork to mm-hmm. create natural sort of breaking points like i could easily find places where i said okay i'm gonna read up to this point and then i'm gonna stop Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i i really like seeing poetry on the page i had the experience of having to really mess with the font size a lot to get the lines not to break weird um Mm -hmm. so if i could have had a physical copy i think the reading experience would have been better there was one point where Devin looked over at me and i was reading it in like extremely tiny type because i was trying to get the line to fully fit on the page the way i think it was supposed to so yeah i think i think that this is something that if you can find that material text don't be afraid of it (laughs) i think you'll have a better experience (laughs) yeah no i i can't imagine that because i was really appreciative of even how some of the verses were very narrow and then other ones took up a whole page and sometimes they were indented like to me that is a crucial factor when you're reading something in verse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i had to work a lot harder to try to um keep the rhythm uh when i was reading <laughs> because i didn't have the the cues were i mean they're there right i, I can still see where the line break was originally mm-hmm. but yeah your brain has to do a little bit more work when you're reading it virtually hmm. well all this to say, I'm actually quite glad that you ended up forcing me <laughs> against my will to read this. And I think that this was an interesting pick, if only because, yeah, my biggest takeaway was that feeling of straddling young adult memoir with almost like adult level reading style. Like this would be a challenge, I imagine, for young mm-hmm. adult readers, a worthwhile challenge. But I think it might be intimidating, it might feel overwhelming. And I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about how does, like, how does a book like this end up getting sold to people? And I do think that it ultimately ends up having to rely on Gensworth's prestige and how many awards it's won. Yeah, I could see this being like a really fun book to dig into in high school, like over a few weeks with a really good teacher. Yeah. I think that otherwise, yeah, it's it's going to be for big fans of Gansworth. And I'm hoping at some point we get to do one of his novels. Joe is like, he has novels and you maybe read the poetry memoir? <laughs> he, he has a bestseller young adult book. That's how he became famous, Brenna. I know. I know. But I was going for the sort of formal diversity we've been looking for in book club. <laughs> Sorry. Look, I'm just saying I hate you and we can move on now. <laughs> okay, Joe. So we are, uh, we're changing gears after mm-hmm. this one. 
well, we're we're sticking with a male protagonist. We've hinted because I think we we've been recording some of these episodes out of order, so people may already have an idea about uh, <laughs> some of our feelings about this next text. <laughs> yes. So our next text is Thumbsucker, both novel and film, and uh, yeah, it's a very different protagonist. I. I like Eric Gansworth, the protagonist, a little, little, little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one's a, another long text, and then the film makes some interesting, maybe misguided adaptation choices. So I'm interested to have people come along this journey with us. Yeah, me too. And then after that, uh, we're heading into a more comfortable territory with um, the 1989 film Say Anything, which will be a fun episode, Joe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you want to get in touch with us about anything that we've talked about on the show, or maybe you're getting ready for the next book club already, and you're already reading We Are Totally Normal, you know we want to hear from you. So you can find us on the hashtag HKHSPod or at HKHSPod on Twitter. Joe, where do they find you? I can be reached at B, still my remotes, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And for anything more long form, like you want to get into the mailbag, you can find us at hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, uh, I'm glad we did this, Joe. And I know that it was dense because it was dense for me too, but I do, I feel like it was one of the more rewarding books we've worked our way through in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. Alrighty. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Well, and Gansworth is really adamant about... <clears throat> Gansworth is really adamant about... Oh, my God. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> I'm the same way. And so I think there are ways in which Gansworth is not particularly worried about... Sorry. Oh, get out. Hang on a sec. Can you mm -hmm. just jump up then? Can you do it? All the way. Otherwise, Joe has to edit you while I'm talking. Get up. All right, then. Um, I listened to the end of the episode where I'm like just yelling at George the other day, one of the mailbags. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh. Uh, I was just saying, oh, yeah.